Welcome into the 11 Dubcast presented by the Dragon Store at 11warriors.com. I am Bo, he is Johnny, and welcome to the full-blown offseason. No draft, <laughs> no, no spring football, uh, transfer portals are down for the moment. Um, there really isn't anything else that is going on big on the Buckeye front. So we've got some, some little things here and there to discuss. We're going to get to some Ask Us Any things that are Buckeye related, and then we're going to do uh, a pretty good chunk on on Game of Thrones Season 8, Episode 4 uh, a little bit later. We'll do that at the end of the show for those of you who aren't into Thrones. So let's, Johnny, let's tackle um, I, kind of the news. And I use news, I use it lightly because uh, while some of this stuff is very heartwarming and some of it's just plain silly, none of this is stuff that would get much attention other than a simple mention in a normal in-season <laughs> dubcast. But this right. is what happens in, in May, my friend. So let's just start with the one that warms my heart the most. And that was the video over the weekend of Ryan Shazier dancing at his wedding. Hell um, yeah. Ryan Shazier was given a 20% chance to walk after his injury. 20% chance to walk. Yeah. And in 18 months, he's dancing at his wedding. And if it, it goes beyond just that, though, it, it, it was immediately after it jumping in and jumping back in all in with the Steelers and waving towels and sitting in press boxes and the, the kids attitude. And if you I covered him at Ohio State, he was one of my favorite kids to cover. Um, and it all adds up to, to the kid that I knew then. And I haven't talked to him in a very long time, but the kid I knew then this all adds up. But if that didn't warm the heart over the weekend, I don't know what did. I remember the first time I saw Ryan Shazier play football, which was the spring game. The, mm-hmm. his fresh, he was a true freshman, and it was spring game, and he was out there just destroying dudes, right? Yeah. He's, he's Ryan Shazier. And I remember just that, you know, there are a couple times where I've seen players either in practice or in the spring game and gone, like before they've made a big impact on the field and gone, that dude's a dude. Like that guy is going to yeah. go out and, and be a significant <laughs> player. And I saw Ryan Jazier and immediately I was like, all right, well, this guy's going to be an all American. Like it wasn't, it wasn't hard to see from the get go. And if there was anybody who was going to have, you know, a chance to do what he's doing right now after the kind of injury that he sustained, it's Ryan Jazier. And to see him like work out with the trainer and be able to do box jumps and dance with his wife and all this other stuff. I mean, it's just, it's really, really awesome to see. He's just a, incredibly determined focused guy and he's 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 great and it's it's like you said it's a heartwarming thing to see but it's also i think a testament to the kind of dedication that guy has just in terms of you know becoming better and in accomplishing what he wants to set out to do because it's it's pretty cool to see um i do want to ask you though go ahead is his goal his goal is to i mean he said he wants to go back into football at some point and i i I was curious about how you felt about that i hope he doesn't i hope that i hope that he uses football as the carrot um to keep him training and getting better but i hope when if it ever gets to the point where physically theoretically he could and let's also acknowledge that that dancing at your wedding and doing box jumps is a a million miles from from being physically well enough to play football. But then even if you were to get physically well enough, you'd have to ask if it made any damn sense at all uh, to risk it all again to play. Um, The Pittsburgh Steelers have stood up here and done an incredible thing, which was pay him last year. And um, they're paying him 500,000 this year. He's not going to play, but they're still paying him 500,000 to do that. So the Steelers have stood up in just a monster way as an organization. And I think he probably has some future in that organization in Pittsburgh that, that he can live the rest of his life in Pittsburgh and probably work for the Steelers as some sort of ambassador. Um, I work with the Browns and I see Kevin Mack in the building all the time. 
mm-hmm. uh, every single day. He has a job. He's a alumni ambassador for the Browns. Like I, I could see Ryan Shazier doing having that type of job with the Steelers and the Steelers organization would love to have him. And I hope that that cooler heads would prevail and he would choose uh, to do that because I, I don't know how you feel about it, but I, I mean, to go from 20% chance you're going to walk again, fighting all the way back and against all of those things. I like, I love that football's the carrot. I just hope he doesn't right. take a bite of it. No, no, I, I'm, I feel exactly the same way. I mean, when you suffer that kind of devastating injury, you just want to see the guy be able to have a healthy and productive life, you know, and not go back into a sport that, you know, chews people up and spits them out. So I just, you know, again, I, it, it's hard because if that's his dream, that's really, really what he wants to do. It's hard for me to sit here on a couch and say, oh, well, screw you, Ryan Shazer. You can't do what you want to do. But like, you know, I, I just I'm not saying like I'm a professional, you know, football writer and things like that necessarily. But I've seen so many people in the sport to the 10 years or so that I've been, you know, writing about Ohio state football and college football in general and the things that it can do to people in terms of, you know, just deteriorating you physically. I just want to see this dude have a happy, healthy life. Yeah. And I think the best way to do that is stay out of football. So, you know, yeah. again, like you said, I, I hope that that keeps him motivated, but ultimately I really just, you know, I just want to see him happy and, and healthy and, and maybe that does not necessarily mean being on the football field. Yeah. So, yeah, that's it. And he had he had his last game as a Buckeye, his last game in the shoe against Michigan, where I mean he was he was a human missile. Yeah, he had like if, I think he had like twenty tackles. Yeah, it was something I really. I, I think it was something like twenty tackles. Yeah, and he just he just flew around like a missile, and it you know that's how he played in the NFL. And the Steelers are still trying to figure out who can be him. They drafted Devin Bush to be him or be, they acknowledge he's probably not going to be Ryan, but if he could be 80% of Ryan, um, that would be a win. But it's, he was such a unique talent and I just hope that he, you know, stays upright, but what it just warmed the heart to see Um, staying in the foot in the NFL arena. I thought this story and I saw Ramsey was all over this, which is appropriate (laughs) because it was just insane. Um, So the story goes that the, I didn't realize this, that the Washington Redskins had not issued number seven since Joe Theismann. Now, I'm old enough to remember Joe Theismann, the player, and he was right. a fine football player. He's a fine football player, but he is most famous for two things uh, when I was young. Number one, he was married to uh, Kathy Lee Crosby, who was a, um, a big television like uh, personality in the 80s. Um, and then he was, um, he was he broke his leg. Uh, yeah, Lawrence Taylor shattered his leg and and uh, on Monday Night Football in front of the whole world. And he never played again. I mean, it was a compound fracture um, on a quick aside. I will say my little brother, who was, I think, five or six at the time, sent him a letter, a get well soon letter. <laughs> and Joe res- sent him a handwritten letter thanking him. Oh, that's so, awesome. That's which great. was really cool, which kind of yeah. goes against a lot of what you've heard about him since. Um, so. I didn't realize it wasn't issued. So then it kind of made it seem like Theismann was kind of bothered that Haskins didn't just wear another number. And in which point Ramsey has the line of, of or the, the day of Twitter where he says, this is a guy, and this is true in Joe Theismann, whose uh, family last name with, was Theismann <laughs> and changed right. it to Theismann right. at Notre Dame to make him uh, a chance at winning the Heisman. Theismann yep. rhymes with Heisman. He changed the pronunciation of his last name. (laughs) 
Yeah. And, and, and you know what? Yeah. Okay. So Joe Theismann, people, people like the guy in, in Washington, obviously had some success there and, and, you know, they're, they're happy with what they got, but like, he's not, he's not a hall I mean, of fame. Peter, or anything. Look, yeah. Peter King of all people was roasting this dude on, <laughs> on yeah. his column, basically saying like, okay, John Kitna basically has a comparable career to Joe Theismann, which is true. And yep. I don't think Dwayne Haskins should have to kowtow to this dude and say like, oh, please, sir, can I can I please have your number, which hasn't been officially retired. And I just I, I mean, I agree. I think it's ridiculous. I think that, you know, if you're looking at a guy who's a Johnny Unitas or a I mean, even a Joe Namath, to be honest, yep. um, I just I don't think Theismann really carries that kind of water. And I, I do think it's a little silly that there would be any kind of controversy. There was a, there was a Deadspin covered this. There was a guy who called in to a New York radio show and just lost his mind at the idea that Dwayne Haskins would wear Joe Theismann's number. Just completely lost it. And I think it's weird that some people just get super attached to these, you know, these these mediocre players that just kind of came around when they were, you know, coming of age as well. And they, you know, they have this attachment to him. And it's like, in retrospect, yeah. these guys aren't that great. And no. maybe some new people deserve a chance to have that number and to, to make something of it. So I think it's well, silly, but yeah, it is you know. totally. Furthermore, I'd like to see um, a reversal on retired jerseys, period. Yeah. I, I think there's far more value. Like you want to put, hang a, a jersey in the rafters or you want to put it in the, in the ring of honor like they do at the shoe? Great. Mm-hmm. But you should still issue uh, 40 and 42 and uh 99 and all the rest of them and when See, you I issue it the only one maybe I not on bill with willis 42 the only one i disagree with is 42 jackie you robinson keep that out but everything well, no, else I mean chick harley i'm not talking about baseball i'm talking about it at ohio state oh well yeah then yeah absolutely 47 and 40 and all those i, sure, I didn't mean 42 yeah. i mean 47 and 40 i just mean the ohio state numbers reissue those numbers to kids and then tell them the reason it's special to wear the number Right. Like I, I think there's more value in that, like giving a running back 27 and saying, this is who wore it. Yeah. That's what it means to wear it here. I think there's more value in that than keeping a, a number out of circulation forever. No, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, it's it's the thing that I find interesting about that. If I were a player, I, w- I would find that motivating as hell. Like somebody says, hey, yeah. we're giving you Eddie George's number. Like what yeah. kind of, I mean, what kind of faith does that show in a player to a coach, right? Like that's, that's to me, that's a huge deal. And I think that would be really cool to see that kind of, you know, passing down the torch ceremony kind of thing going on. I think that would be amazing. Yeah. Michigan so, yeah, used I'm, to I'm number one. Remember what number one, like they would wear Anthony Carter start, start it and then they would give it to the best wide receiver at Michigan. Right. And in yep. many instances, they were great college players. Yeah. You know, no, I think that's, I think that's really cool. And And I've always liked the idea that like, especially in soccer, for example, where you, the best player wears number 10, right? Yeah. Like that's kind of the, the agreed upon best player on the team. I always think that's neat. It's, it's a cool way to kind of signify to people who aren't super familiar with the team, right? Like your opponent or whatever, this is the guy to look out for, right? Yeah. I just, I think that's fun. I think that's a cool way to kind of get people to involved in the game in a different way. And yeah, I'm, I'm with you, man. I, I, I like honoring the numbers, but I also think it's a neat way to keep passing down that tradition. Yeah, yeah, I think it's simple. I'm glad that Haskins got to wear seven. It's going to be a sweet looking jersey. That seven always. Oh yeah, good. oh yeah. So that'll be good. Uh, last other little tidbit, and then I want to do one other kind of bigger issue, um, and that is Greg Oden who graduates. And what a long, strange trip it has been for Greg Oden, who, um, unfortunately for most it, outside of Columbus, is viewed as the guy who will he'll always be remembered as a guy who was picked instead of Kevin Durant. Right. That will always be. It's amazing that Portland did this twice. 
Um, they did it with Sam Bowie over Michael Jordan, and they did it with um, with Greg Oden over Kevin Durant. And um, in the instance of Oden, injured both really Bowie too, but even more so as Oden was just he just could not get healthy, couldn't do it, and he's had a tough life after it uh, with dealt with alcoholism. There's some uh, some domestic issues that are in there as well, and it mm-hmm. has not all been smooth uh, going. But he one thing that does. Uh, and I didn't. I don't know Greg at all. I didn't cover him. I missed it. Um, but everybody who does said he's just a wonderful guy. And it appears that he has found his footing back in Columbus, and that he's most comfortable around the Ohio State basketball program, doing anything around yeah. the program. That that's where he is most comfortable. I think it's cool that Chris Holtman, you know, a guy who you know ostensibly doesn't have any real connection with Greg Oden, aside from the fact that they're you know both Ohio State associated but uh the fact that chris holman's really embraced the guy and and had him be involved with the program and do yeah. some coaching and do some other things i think that just shows what a stand-up dude chris holman is and that greg odin is really kind of taking that and running with it is awesome too and it's you know the pictures he's he's there with the other players and he's there with joey lane and all the other dudes getting their their diplomas and stuff that's just an awesome thing to see greg odin was at ohio state while i was at ohio state oh and okay yeah, and and honestly, like, I mean, everybody knew the guy was going pro. There was no illusion that this guy was like, okay, this is a regular student athlete. I just remember, I remember the one time I saw him in person, just out and about on campus. It was right after they had lost to um, to Florida in the national championship game, and it was a rain. It was it was like right before finals, and it was a rainy day. And I see this guy; he's obviously seven feet tall. So it's like, okay, well, it's either Greg Godin or nobody, and. <laughs> He's just, you know, when he's walking around campus and I was just thinking like, he looked like the saddest dude in the history of the universe. And I was like, why, first of all, why is Greg Oden here? <laughs> it's like, yeah. this is, this doesn't seem like something that should really be on his plate right now. And secondly, I just could remember thinking like, wow, it, it is kind of remarkable that the guy's still taking classes right now. He came back, he's taking this seriously. And I'm yeah. glad that, I mean, it took him a lot of time to get back to it, obviously, and, and finish it up, but that doesn't matter because you got the diploma and you did what you need to do. And I think that's awesome. So yeah, I've always been a huge fan of Greg Odin's. I loved watching him uh, play basketball while he was at Ohio state. And, you know, like you said, by all accounts, he's a pretty stand up guy. So uh, hopefully this is uh this is kind of a culmination of a lot of effort on his part. I think it's pretty awesome. Yeah, it is. It's just uh, all three of the little kind of stories we had there all all make you feel good in one way or another, yeah. and it was good to see that all happen. Uh, the other thing that interested me, Ohio State Front, was uh, a story on the site. Uh, I, I read it today, but I think it was published over the weekend about possible home and homes uh, that you'd <laughs> yeah. like to see Ohio State play. And this is always something fun in the offseason. We look at these things, and these things are scheduled 100 years out. Uh, there was one I saw that came out today between Georgia and Oklahoma where one is going to play, like I think they're going to play in Norman in 2023 and then in Athens in 2031. So, like, <laughs> yeah, right. they're, all, they, they're, they're so far out. Uh, the ones we have on the, on the schedule uh, over the next couple of years are Oregon, I saw. Let me pull this up really quickly. I just had this up. Um, do you know I'm at the top? I have Not top of my head. All right, Oregon in 2020 and 20. So Oregon next year, and then right. in 21, Notre Dame in 2022 and 23, which will be a lot of fun. Washington in 24 and 25, Texas in 25 and 26. Um, so you'll play both Washington and Texas in 2025. So that that will be a lot of fun. So that's the uh, that's what's ahead. Uh, of course, historically in the last few years, you've had Texas and USC and Miami and Virginia Tech and Oklahoma are those. And then in the story, it goes to mention uh, three that they that uh, we'd like to see, which are Kentucky, 
LSU and Alabama. Um, the Kentucky one, I'm guessing, is just kind of a border war situation. The other two are pretty self-explanatory sure. uh, with LSU and Alabama. Um, I like the way Ohio State does this with home and away. I think it's nice. I think it's cool to go into places you would not otherwise go rather than playing the way Bama does these neutral site games. I yeah. much prefer. Oh, my um, God. I look, it's cool to see Baker Mayfield come to Columbus, even though you don't yeah. like him sticking a flag in the turf. Like, it's still cool to see Oklahoma come into town. Yeah, I don't look. I, first of all, I am so annoyed and irritated. And I know they're playing the game. And I understand this is like the smartest thing to do for them if they're trying to get in the playoffs. But the the neutral site stuff, not wanting to travel more than a couple hundred miles away from campus, I just I, it, it makes my blood boil. Not because it's the dumb thing to do. Obviously, it's a smart move. I'm not saying it's not. Yeah. But for <laughs> for entertainment value, why even schedule these games if you're not willing to have the team come to your place and then go to their place to reciprocate? I just don't yeah. understand why you even set this stuff up because otherwise, it's just a it's an early season bowl game that nobody really cares about besides the two fan bases. Because, uh, like, I just – I want to see that atmosphere. I want to see a big-name team that LSU doesn't normally play have to go into Death Valley and deal with that. I want to see, you know, an Alabama sure. travel above the Mason-Dixon line, right, hey, to be actually cool? have to play somebody. To see Alabama so, come – to come play us or play Penn State or play Michigan? No, I don't see them ever doing that because they, they know that they know the way the system's done, so they're not going to do it. LSU went up to play Wisconsin and got like smacked, and that, that that I think that probably put off the entire SEC from that idea for the next several decades. So, yeah, it stinks. It's it stinks. It's, it's frustrating. I'd love to see it. Yeah, yeah, I would I'm too. I'm excited. I'm excited to 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 go like go play it in Eugene. I mean, that'd be yeah. a fun trip. I'd like to do that trip, like flying to Portland. Go to Nike Town and go catch a game at Otson. I'd like to do that. I mean, I think that's that's a cool thing. And I know a lot of Buckeye fans did that in Austin when the Bucks played down there. I know it happened at USC. I'd love to see that. I'd love to see us go play some, uh, you know, something in the – I think those two Notre Dame games are going to be great, and I'd love to see something played. I think the, the real answer more than the Kentucky one is, is LSU and Alabama and Auburn. I mean, any yeah. of those would be cool. Clemson would be cool. Florida State and Florida would be cool as home and aways. Um, all of those would be cool to take, you know, to take the Buckeyes into any of those places and have any of those places come up. Um, and I think there's tremendous value to it in college football. Uh, I really do. I think, you know, the no brainer one would be Alabama, but it doesn't have to be Bama. There's a lot of, I think there's a lot of dancing partners down there for you. If you, if you're interested in doing it. I think, yeah, I, in that, and if that's going to happen, I mean, you're going to have to try to like cast a pretty wide net because there's a lot of them are going to balk at the idea and you know, you gotta, you gotta find somebody who's willing. I just, you know, Again, the SEC, historically, I mean, you can look at the statistics. They're just incredibly unwilling to travel out of the South for out-of-conference oh, yeah. games. Um, and, and and I'm not even saying that just to dump on the SEC. Like, you, you, if you look at their out-of-conference games, they don't travel out of the South. They just don't. And it's frustrating because, I, you know, for college football in general, I like to see those kind of matchups. But logistically, I also think it's important because – for the way the college football playoff works out, I think it creates a more authentic end of season conversation when you have teams from different parts of the country and different conferences, marquee teams playing each other earlier in the season. Because I don't, I would rather, if the narrative is going to be set by someone, 
all right, or something. I would rather it be set by actual games that have been played rather than our perceptions of how these teams could stack up against each other, right? So if Alabama yeah. is the perceived greatest team in the entire history of the universe, I want to see them actually have to prove that against a decent team that's not in the SEC in September, right? Yeah. Because then we can actually have a conversation about it. But before then, it's just it's all supposition, and I can't stand that. It drives me nuts. Yeah, it's a shame. I, I think I just think it, you know they're not going to do it. I just would. I hope we can find some dancing partners. And yeah. I think the, the easy ones that are most exciting are those teams in the deep south. I mean, right now where the Pac-12 is, there's not much intriguing there. You already play, you've played UC, USC. You're going to play Washington and Oregon. There's really nothing else out there uh, right. that, that interests me. Um, and so then it just then it's really about the deep south. Or you know Texas A&M would be cool. I'd love to go down there and have them come yep. up there. That's another team that would have an interest in that. Um, but those are the teams that I think make the most sense. I think LSU is the most apples for apples program from the standpoint oh, yeah. of, of the way that they're the state is at the, that it's the only you know school of record in the state in big time college football. And Baton Rouge is a big has become a big town. It's not mm-hmm. as big as Columbus, but it's come a big town after after Katrina, and um, and it's a big city. So I mean, I think I think that would be that would be a fun one to play. And, and I think the fan bases are pretty similar in terms of their passion. So I think, I think those would be fun ones. And hopefully one of the, hopefully they, they keep working on those things. Maybe you work something out. Uh, yeah. We have time for a couple of ask us anything's my friend. What do you have for us tonight? Well, guys, if you would like to continue sending us these excellent ask us anything questions, you can do so to dubcast at 11 warriors.com or at 11 dubcast on Twitter. Uh, this is a little, let's go back to Dwayne a little bit. This is from our, uh, our friend, Nick, uh, Nick, is basically saying, all right, so he's, he's listening to a interview on part of my take with Mel Kuyper and Todd McShay. Uh, They're asked about the faults of Dwayne, and one of them brought up that he may be con- too concerned with his brand. Uh, just wondering what mm-hmm. uh, the two of you uh, thought about this and the statement of Dwayne being too concerned with his brand, especially considering how NCAA athletes aren't allowed to profit, and yet the OCU football cell, uh, staff encourages building your brand via Real Life Wednesdays. Okay, I, I think that... I think there's a lot of factors that led to Dwayne falling in the draft. Um, based, I've poked around a little bit in NFL circles, and, and one of the things I'm able to do in, in the, what I do for a living. And so um, a couple of things on it. Number one, I think there was real concern for some teams about his dad. And we talked about that in the New Jersey NJ.com story, which I thought shouldn't have been put out. Um, mm, yeah. But still, some of it can be both that that story shouldn't have been put out and that some of the details are troubling. So I think I think that scared some teams. I say that while acknowledging that, according to my people at Ohio State, he was never once a problem ever at Ohio State. Never. Right. Like any any sort of selfishness or branding or worrying about himself, that none of that happened at Ohio State. And I think the proof is in the pudding there because he could have transferred like all the rest of these kids did, and he didn't. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that would be the proof there. Now, the other thing that I heard from from really strong sources in the NFL was that the the concern with Dwayne was when he's pushed off his spot, he does not have good feet. That sure. he doesn't have good feet when he feels pressure. He does not have good feet and that his deep ball accuracy just is not there the way that they want for it to be elite. That that's from the from people I talk to in the NFL. Right. So you don't think so the the branding, any of him, like any of the extra stuff, it's just all some of I think the dad did bother some people, probably. Okay. But I think that the other things were more bothersome. Yeah, I, I mean, I, 
first of all, if the NFL, and again, I don't have any special insight into how, you know, people who make these kind of decisions think, but if the NFL is worried about people cultivating their brand and whatnot, then they better be worried about literally every single first round pick that comes out of the draft, because that's just, uh, that's just what they do. That just how it's done. They all have their own brand name. They all have a website that they're selling t-shirts on and that's fine. I don't, there's nothing wrong with that. And I don't think honestly that distracts from anything. I think that's just a, a really normal thing to do. If you've got, got that kind of exposure, especially if you haven't had the chance to do something like that during college. So if that truly is a factor, then they, they need to kind of get their heads out of their asses a little bit, because that's that's just kind of the reality of the situation. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. I think it was probably a, a, a poor football judgment, um, because I think you'll see those kind of problems with literally any other quarterback you might want to yeah, draft. Um, but but yeah, I didn't I, see you know, it. I mean, I didn't see right. those problems. I thought he was the best quarterback in the draft. I would have taken him ahead of Kyler Murray. So Bar none. Yeah, bar none. Um, all right, so this next one here, this one's interesting. So uh, this is from Nelson. He says, it seems like uh, many recruits have OSU and Georgia of their two final picks, sometimes the only two. Uh, the latest is a uh, linebacker um, from D.C. How did OSU and Georgia become such rivals in recruiting? Well, uh, Georgia is very fertile for recruiting. So Ohio State's been doing this for a long time under Urban. He knew it from his time at Florida. He knew the amount of talent. There's an incredible population swell in Georgia and South Carolina over the last, you know, 10, 15 years, 20 years. And and now Georgia, I would guess, I have no data to back this up, but my guess is that Georgia is fourth in the country in talent. College football producer talent. I would think it would go I would think it would go Florida, Texas, California, Georgia. I would think they're four. Um, and then I think it's probably close between like Ohio and Louisiana. I mean, it's just guessing Ohio, Louisiana are in that next group. Um, but I would think that they would be a steady, a steady third, fourth in that. Um, so it's, it's, and it's an area that at the time that urban was first got here, there was not a, a dominant coach at Georgia. Mark Rick recruited really well, but if it was a battle between urban and Mark Rick, urban could say, look, I beat him on the field. And Mark's right. a great guy. He's I know Mark. He's a great guy. Um, but he wasn't a dog in recruiting. Well, they have dogs now recruiting with Kirby Smart. So yeah. so that's I mean, if you pay attention to what George has done in the recruiting the last couple of years, you see how high the level they're recruiting at. And they're very similar programs, Ohio State and Georgia. Very similar. We've won a lot more, obviously. But in terms of the passion, the money, uh, the blue blood factor in the state, Georgia has all of that. And so I think in many ways they're natural rivals. It's also um more so than Alabama or Florida, um, it's it's kind of a new frontier. And I think Urban kind of carved out a little niche down there. Yeah, I wonder – so I agree with that. And I also wonder if you're getting a situation uh, maybe with Ryan Day where he wants to establish, you know, like maybe a pipeline in a fertile state, right, with a ton of recruits. And he's like, okay, well, let's see if I can get some high schools, some coaches, some connections here where, you know, we'll be the first or second call if something like this, you know, we, they get a really good recruit or something in one of their classes. Um, well, furthermore, get, the, the other thing that's huge in this is that we have Justin Fields. Right. Yes. Who is right. a Georgian who is a, a very high regard. And so it's easy to say, hey, come play with Justin. He's here. He loves it. So, I mean, I think that's the other part of it. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. Um, I'm going to throw in one last one here because I think okay. this is. This is uh, relevant to you. This is from our uh, good friend, Suncard. Uh, Suncard says, I am a high school track coach, and many of my guys play football. Often I have a kid who is on the fence because football workouts and seven-on-seven leagues and camps have become year-round and wants to focus on football. 
Uh, I tell them that college coaches want to see you play multiple sports. In general, yeah. should a high school kid play multiple sports or yes. maximize a single sport? Oh, it's multiple, always. Always. Yep. Always. I mean, every there was just a stat around the NFL draft about about the amount of first rounders who played multiple sports. It's it's a monster number. It's a monster number. Um, if you have a coach that tells you to have that your kid needs to specialize, um, then you just quit that sport <laughs> because yeah. nobody needs to do that at a, at a really young age. I think, I don't even think it's necessary in high school. I mean, the kids that I, that when I covered high school, the closest was in Florida and I covered um, in high school, I covered Antonio Cromartie and Ernie Sims and Pat Watkins and all those kids played at Florida state. Uh, they're all Tallahassee Lincoln kids or North Florida Christian kids. And they were all in Tallahassee and they all played bat. They all played football ran track uh one of i think even antonio played basketball or pat played basketball like that you do it all no you don't need yeah. to specialize you do not need to specialize look if you're a d1 athlete you can you probably play multiple sports yeah you know what i mean like i don't know if there's a kid who's like man i really got to concentrate in football so i can get that you know division one scholarship i i mean all of those kids are are talented enough to play multiple sports and and honestly you know, just for someone's sanity, right? Just for kids' like enjoyment of, of sports in general, like let them play what they want to play. If they're good at it and they enjoy it, they'll be fine. You know, if they're yeah. good enough to get a scholarship, they'll they'll be able to do that no matter what sport they're playing. So, um, yeah, I, I would definitely say multiple sports is the way to go. And and I think coaches, like you said, coaches look for that. They like the they fact do. that a kid can do you know all kinds of different things and showcase their athleticism in different ways. So I'm I, I would totally agree with that. Yeah, um, it's, it's, we, the, have, the, we have a few more. That is not yeah, we have a few more Ask Us Anythings on the back burner, but we'll we'll keep those for next week. Uh, but please continue sending those questions in, and we'll keep answering them. All right, be sure to visit uh, 11 War- Warriors for dry goods, shirts, hats, stickers, and more, drygoods.11warriors.com. And don't forget to follow the 11 Dubcast on Twitter, rate and subscribe on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, this is the part of the show where we talk thrones. Uh, you are a book reader. I am a consumer of this uh, only from a television perspective, and I think – um, as we get into the, the big issues that that are going on, and I, I will say this right off the top, I loved. I was thoroughly entertained for an hour and twenty minutes. Thoroughly, okay. I yeah. mean. So it it I think it can be both that I am thoroughly entertained, and I think they've made critical mistakes. Yeah. Um, so I think that's where I am with it now. I'm I'm pretty terrified that because of the lack of direction of George R. R. Martin, that 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 these guys chronologically have. Sc- kind of screwed up this story <laughs> is my fear um that's my fear as a as a viewer of the tell of the show do you share those fears yeah I, I so the biggest problem is i think there's two problems one is is plotting and, and one thing that i saw in a review about the most recent episode is that they they tend to go for um like the guys who are in charge of the show like uh, i was i was blanking Benny off and white's yeah, Benny Hoffman-Weiss. So, again, they, they are very good at kind of, I think, the logistics of creating the show and, like, getting together what they need to do. But the actual narrative they struggle with when they don't have a framework, I mean, I think you saw that with, like, Lost, for example. It kind of, I, yeah. I feel, you know, kind of flew off the rails towards the end. Um, so the problem is that you're trying to tell a story that involves this you know, epic battle against, you know, these white walkers and whatnot. But that necessitates you filming at night in winter uh, over, you know, a relatively long period of time to try to get all this stuff together. And I think what they've done is they've taken a 
a story, which I think is a good story. It's a good idea for a story, like in terms of what's happening with the characters, that should really be like a two season story. And they're trying yes. to condense it into a one season lengthy episode kind of thing. And I, I just don't think it works that way because you're having all these characters and they're doing different things and they're reacting to different events and the events in a vacuum make sense. But within the context of like an hour and 20 minutes, you're like, it's like whiplash. Like every single scene is just going back and forth, back and forth when really it could be stretched out to multiple episodes. And I think that's really kind of the problem that I've seen the past couple episodes where it's like the content's great, but just the way it's delivered is just, it's way too much, way too fast. Yeah, it is. And I think the, um, well, there's a lot of, a lot of things to discuss here, but let's, let's do something. Uh, this is the thing that is, that is weighing me down the most. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious your opinion on this as someone who read the books. Okay. Is there, is there more evidence of, of Danny? Cause to me, they're very clearly writing her to be the mad queen. Sure. So, yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Which is there more evidence in the books that suggests that's possible than that there is in the television show? Because in the TV show, there has been next to nothing. We'll see that. Exactly. And that's the, that is here. Okay. So in the books, they're not even before the show really got going, right? Like I'm, I'm going to go all the way back to like season two or three, right? Before the, the show really got going to the point where like Danny is this conquering, like, you know, like, dragon queen and things like that when she was still trying to figure out her way and all that stuff yeah um that's where the books essentially left us right the books actually leave us with her um and like having just escaped marine on drogon and she's by herself and she hasn't been picked up by the dothraki again so that's where okay. the books have left her <clears throat> so she hasn't a chance to really conquer much of anything um there have been hints of it and they show it in the show where where she crucifies all those people on the way to the the city and there's like 300 you know 300 people and whatever and there's elements of that but the thing is is that in the books it exists like in the same realm of all these other terrible things that you read about so while yeah she's you know doing really kind of messed up stuff it, it's really kind of on par with what every other leader is doing in the show or in the books so it, it doesn't yeah. seem that extreme and i think what's happening in the in the show is that you know, they're trying to portray all these all these things that she's doing is like really extreme and terrible. But what has she done though in the show? Like it doesn't it doesn't, it doesn't seem, add up. That's what I'm saying. It, it's the same kind of problem. Like in the books, you could in the books you could build up to that gradually over the course of a couple, you know, several thousand you know word not or seven thousand page novels. Um, but in the case of the show, it's like okay, well, in the course of several hours, she's turned to this like all-consuming rage monster and it, it just it doesn't it just doesn't seem to fit very well for the character because of how quickly it's had to develop so well and furthermore in the books, in the books no there really isn't there a ton isn't. of contextual okay. evidence right. so furthermore in the show the only reason that she is in this absurdly precarious position is because the writers put her there right like right. these idiots Tyrion, john snow Varys have given her the worst advice. Yeah, right. She has the worst generals. <laughs> if she had just done what she wanted, she could have, like, to me, it would have been much more believable for when she lands in Westeros to take the two armies and the three dragons and light King's Landing on fire. Right. I will take what is mine by fire and blood. If she had done that, and then you got to fight her, Jon Snow fights her, okay, that I can get behind. 
that I can get behind. But right. every every decision that she's made has be, has been at the behest of others, foregoing her own wishes and her own inclinations. And she's still going to end yeah. up having to do that anyway. And now right? she's going like, to have to do it anyway. And I don't yeah. blame her. Like they pledged to her that they would fight for her to do this. She gave right. up two dragons and most of her army to go fight the dead. It wasn't even her battle, right? Yeah. She right. did it. She did it because they asked her, right? The only right. thing that she's done that's egregious, and by the way, the one Tarly guy probably deserved, like he was brutal. Hey, dick on Tarly. Okay. Maybe you don't need to burn Dick on Tarly to the ground, but the dad definitely deserved to be burnt. I have no yeah. problem with that. So, like, what else? She hasn't done anything else for these people to dislike her. And yeah, she is I mean, responsible from the show perspective. She is responsible for the most uplifting moments in the show. And it's not close. Yeah. It's not and close. So it's 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 weird. It is weird what they've done in terms of characterization. And the books, I will also add that there is an element that they've completely taken away from the show, which is, uh, you know how like, uh, you know the um, the Sand Snakes are not Sand Snakes, but um, Oberyn Martell, right? Yeah. His whole motivation was to uh, get you know revenge for his his sister that was murdered and their two kids. Well, in the books, uh, Varys has supposedly found one of these kids actually alive and well, and he's supporting an invasion of Westeros by one of these now like teenage kids. And that's, that's completely gone from the, the show. And what they've right. done is I think they've shifted Varys' allegiance to uh, Danny, at least temporarily, obviously, because that's, that, that seems like that's also going by the wayside. But I guess what I'm saying is that it, because everything's so condensed, it doesn't seem like it's organic at all. And it just no. feels like Danny's like suddenly turned into this power mad, you know, conqueror when in the books, I, I think what's going to happen is you're going to have the really messy situation in Westeros with tons of different, you know, armies and stuff competing with each other and nobody really knows what's going on. And then maybe she's viewed as that, as opposed to her actually acting on those, on those words. So, so then um, you think to yourself, what is going to have to happen next week? to make you want her dead. And I don't know. The only thing because burning Cersei and burning random faceless people in King's Landing ain't going to do it. Well, that, so, I think that's what they're leaning on. I think they're leaning but on But that's not enough. The, yeah, I think they're leaning on her going enough. to King's Landing and blowing the crap out of everybody and the viewers going to be like, "Oh, she's terrible now." Well, Tyrion no. had been <laughs> Tyrion had been praying for that for like the past 5 seasons about how he wants everyone in King's Landing dead. So, yeah. I don't know like I don't know how you can excuse him from that. And then, you know, call out, you know, Danny for actually putting it into action, which is something that, you know, even though he says now is like, oh, you got to be the good queen and everything. I mean, something he had been fighting for forever. So I, don't I, know. I think I, they, they, they're going to put her in a position to have to do something that's against character to make us right. dislike her. Um, so they'll, they'll, maybe she's going to have to kill Arya or kill John or kill. She's going to have to kill somebody like that. Yeah. You know, and in a fit of rage to make right. you because she has been the heroine forever. Yeah, I don't know what so you can it just, do. It's just it's a bridge too far. So I just was curious if the if the if the books back like I'm fine with her dying. I think I think sure. she can be heroic in death, and I think that would be an honest, you know, characterization. But for her to be a full on villain that needs to be murdered by Jon Snow, I I can't I can't get there in two episodes. No, I don't. And, and it, like I said, the books haven't really established anything like that. And I don't. I mean, they haven't really gotten to the point where they could even have a chance to do that. But I agree with you. Like, I just, I, I think it's too much to ask the viewers to go, oh, she's, she's bad now. Because I just, I don't, I don't see it. I don't see the kind of, you know, like you said, she's been sacrificing 
to Everything. protect the north, you know, sacrifice two of her dragons, most of her armies, and people are like, oh, well, now she's terrible. Like, I, I agree with you. I think it's that sits with me, uh, not very well. And I think some of the other things that they've done as well have been pretty, I, you know, like just the fast forward on the story with Gendry, for example. Like, I know it's, it's about the fact that you're just kind of like remaking the world and stuff. But this is a dude who literally just appeared, you know, a few episodes ago, you know, in the end of last season. And now he's the, you know, the Lord of Storms End. Like, I, I get yeah. the the family connection there, but it just doesn't. He he's not he's not a lord. He's he's a blacksmith who like was barely aware yeah. of his parentage. Like, it, you've got to you got to be able to build some of this stuff up organically. And it just feels like they're throwing plot points at the screen. And it's it's still fun to watch, but it's, it's not. Great. It, it's the, the plotting best. just isn't. The plotting isn't as intricate as it was when it was still on the books, and then that's really a big problem. So, yep, I think it is, and I think that the separation is real. I think the, um, I think that these two don't. I think that Benioff and Weiss are really, really not interested or struggle with the, um, the mythical creatures and all of that. I think they don't yeah. know what to do with them. Like, I think the John Dyerwolf thing was insane. I was just like, <laughs> all right, see you later, peace out, ghost. Like Bye. that was crazy. I'll catch you later. I thought that was nuts. And by the way, if you're gonna go fight, like, wouldn't you want? A, a dire wolf who will never leave your side by you. Right. You know, like that seems. And then I just think the other thing is, um, you know, who would be so stupid as these people are? Yeah. Danny John, and John. I mean, John, like John's just the dumbest established character of being dumb, but was he, was he this dumb in the books? He, you know, he, no, he is. He, he is basically like Ned where he can just, he can't, he can't lie. He is, he is honest to a fault and he, makes a lot of really stupid decisions like that is absolutely in keeping with this character i mean he last thing we see from john snow is him getting stabbed by the night's watch uh for doing a really crappy job at uh you know being a, a politician as leader of the night's watch and letting the wildlings in through the wall and that's what gets him killed the first time and it's yeah. he could have he probably could have set some things up where you know he could have told him to shut the hell up and, and just handle it but uh, he just believed that everybody would see the logic of his decision and it, it got him murdered. So, you know, that's that's pretty that's pretty consistent with his character. He, he uh, you know, he broods okay. a lot. He makes dumb decisions. He's very brave. He's very honorable. He's very honest, but he's dumb. And he, you know, that that's what I think makes him an interesting character in some ways, because he really does like. He's just a badass, but he's not a very intelligent, like political badass. And that's the same thing that got Ned killed. So it, it'll be interesting to see what happens at the end with him, because I think he's going to make another really dumb, apolitical decision that is going to get somebody killed. You don't think that they have to do something to redeem him? No, because I think they're operating on the idea that he's like everybody's hero. I think he, I think they think that everybody loves Jon Snow and that they, you know, they'll the audience will just kind of go along with whatever choices he decides to make. Wow. I think they're miscalculating a lot of this. I agree. That's no, true. I agree. But I, I want to trust them. I want to trust them because they've done the, the coolest thing that I've ever witnessed in entertainment, but sure. I just, I don't buy, I do not buy this. The last thing that I have a, a major pro now, how did you read the Jamie Lannister move to head back to King's Landing? How did you read that? I don't, I think he is a man who doesn't believe he deserves brands like sense of honor and love. I, I think he feels that he is, he has to, to redeem himself somehow. And I so actually you don't think like it's that. a heel turn, right? Like you think he's going there to kill Cersei. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I 100%. I don't think this is a heel turn. I think he's saying basically like, I, you know, I can't, I don't deserve what you're giving me. And I, I actually really like that aspect of the episode. 
Um, I thought that was the most authentic one. It was, again, rushed. But uh, the fact that I guess what I would say is that in the books, one of the things that I really uh, like about this dynamic that's always kind of made it really nice for me on the show is that you get the sense in the books from Jamie's perspective that he just respects the hell out of Brienne. Like he, he makes fun of her and he taunts her and he calls her ugly and all this stuff. But it's pretty clearly a cover for the fact that he wishes that he was the kind of knight that she is. And, I, you know, I think the the moment in the episode where he's like, I have, you know, strangled my cousin. I've, you know, pushed a kid out of a tower. Like I've done mm-hmm. terrible things. I think he wants to close the loop and and try to redeem himself in his own eyes. Um, and I, I, I really like that part. That was actually probably one of my favorite parts of the episode. I do too. And that's the way I read that. Um, I had people who were talking to me today saying that, that they thought that it was a heel turn. And I don't, yeah, I don't I think, think if that's the case, then that is another pathetic job of narrative. Yeah. To have I, somebody, I don't think that's the case. Yeah. Me either. Okay. I'm not like, I think he kills Cersei. Like, I think that's the way that thing's going to go. Yeah. Um, all right. So that's fine. Um, you're on Greyjoy. We discussed that last week, how he's much more formidable in the books than he is in the oh TV show. I really um, got to send you some like quotes describing this dude. He, he, he's like a, he's like, he's literally seems like a demon from hell the way they describe him in the books. And, okay. And, and that's not portrayed. No, he's just, he's a, he's a frat douche who makes, you know, dick jokes. Like I just, it's terrible. Like I just, I don't know. He's not formidable. It's poor casting, poorly written. He shouldn't have come on the scene the way he did so late. Like he needed to be introduced. If he was going to play this type of role, he should have been introduced in season two. So we had, we're aware of his greatness and that he was looming. I mean, there was just nothing. He just shows up on the scene and kills this guy. You don't care if he lives or dies, you know, Theon's dad. So it's, it's just. They, they have done a disservice to the character because it's not believable that he'd be the greatest harpoon shooter in the history of harpoon shooters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's... All right. Your, um, how do you think this now plays out? Uh, well, I think we, we kind of elaborated on it. I think they're going to go in, they're going to burn the hell out of King's landing. They'll make Danny to look out, you know, look out to be this, uh, you know, this, this crazy, you know, conquering, you know, madman who's going to try to burn the world down. And I don't know what her end is going to be, but I, I think they're going to kill her. I, I really yeah. think that's what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen with Cersei. That's something that I'm still, I mean, I think Jamie's going to go after, but I really don't, I, I don't know how that's going to play itself out. I think that's, that's one of the more interesting unanswered questions to me because I don't know, you know, I don't know what Jamie is going to do. I think he's going to have to make a decision about what they're going to do together. And and hopefully I, I, I want him to kill her because I think that's, that would be a great way she to, has to die. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe she doesn't. And, and that would be a real, like that would be a hell of a, uh, you know, a knife to put in the back of the viewers. I think a little bit, cause she's, you know, kind of been just smug as hell for the past two or three seasons. Um, but I, you know, I think they're going to burn down King's landing and that's going to be a huge disaster. And then I think they're going to have to deal with the political fallout. Tyrion, I really have no idea what they're trying to do with his character either. I think He's that's such another, a moron. Yeah. I, I don't know what they're, I don't really know what they're going for with him. Um, so we'll see. We'll, we'll, I mean, that's, that to me is kind of the X factor and it still is because I don't know where they're going with this character yet. So do you think then that John would have to kill Danny? That seems to be what we're yeah. for. Yeah, I think I honestly think that is that is a very high possibility at this point. And that's so and hard that, for me to get to with two episodes. I know. I don't know. I don't know how the hell they were going to be able to do something like that. I don't know where that will come from. Unless um, she just like knowingly burns like all of the northern soldiers and 
yeah. Arya Stark to the ground. But if but if she did, but if she did, that would be so, completely out of character. It, it would, would be, be really stupid. It would be stupid and would be out of character. Yeah. That's my problem. I just I don't know. It's got to, it leaves <laughs> me with a really tough feeling on it, man. So who do you yeah. cuz and the other thing is is I don't see any scenario where Jon Snow ends up on the throne. I think he's nope. going to end up north of the wall. Yep. If he does that, why well, don't that's that Yeah, I I don't know why he would do that though. Like if okay, so if John kills Danny, wh- what is the next step for him? Like I know he would want to probably go in like exile or something like that. You wouldn't want to be in charge of the north or be on the iron throne or anything like that. But what I mean, there's nothing in the north. Like, what are you defending against? Like, what nothing. are you doing? And I think honestly, I but here's the thing. I, I actually think you're right because I think they were setting something up with that when when they had that goodbye with Tormund, right? Yep. Where he's like, Oh, yep. you've got the north in you, and this is like where you belong, and blah blah blah. Well, okay. So if John's gonna end up in the north, how is he gonna get there? Well, guilt over killing Danny would be a pretty uh what you know reasonable way to do that i guess but i think so does that end up with who on the throne i have no No clue (laughs) that would be i mean you're running out of people braun of house terrell i don't know i mean that's the thing i don't know i don't know it's it's uh there's a lot of story that has to unfold in two episodes though and it does feel rushed and i think at the very least it should have been a 10 season 10 episode season yeah, i think it should have been two seasons like i think they yeah. had two more that they could have stretched this out and made it a little more believable and again logistically i understand why they didn't but it's just you know it, without the the books to guide them i think they've just kind of picked these plot points and said okay how can we put this on film as quickly as possible let me ask you this last one and then we'll get out of here do you yeah. think that um, from what you understand, do you think that George R. R. Martin, my belief is he had to approve of their end game? Well, so they've done interviews where they've said that, uh, you know, George R. R. Martin told him how everything kind of ends up and, and given them the, the major plot points. Okay, I then. say again. Okay. Yeah. Well, here's the thing though. I don't, George R. R. Martin could change stuff. You know what I mean? He may see this and may decide like, nope, that's not how I, what I want to do. He's constantly changing and rewriting things. Part of the reason why the last book took, you know, five or six years to come out is because he had the manuscript mostly done four years into the writing process and then decided he wanted to change a huge chunk of it and just completely rewrote what was happening. About three years ago, he actually put a post on his blog and he was like, uh, you know what? I don't like how this character is going to finish up. So I'm just rewriting that part. Wow. And it, I, guess, I guess what I'm saying is, is that while the major plot points are probably there, I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up changing a significant chunk of it and, and you know, and deciding to do something else. Jeez. So it's, it'd be crazy. It's, honestly, this is, this is probably the only, this is probably the only, uh, you know, ending we're going to get on Game of Thrones. Yeah, this is, unfortunately. And the other thing is, is what the way that this is received could change the way he was, his original intent. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's not great either. That All of this being said, all of the complaining, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's still great entertainment. It's just not to the height that it used to be, which is unfortunate. Yeah, and I just think from a uh, chronologically, from a, and from a narrative standpoint, there is some enormous holes that are happening if this plays out now if she doesn't go mad queen and she, and she and john you know somehow get together and honestly at that i would prefer the happy ending i would prefer yeah. her and john i agree i would make more that. sense that would make right. more sense than where we're going right now based yeah, on I what we've seen all right buddy uh we'll be back next week we will do episode five which everybody says is a monster so we yep. will do uh we'll do episode five and keep you updated as we always do on all the ohio state stuff uh until next week my friend Yep, see you next week.